Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through when you don't know what to do. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, who is not here today, Adrian Gruberg, but maybe she'll be here next week. Also coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 26 global audio and video platforms including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo. The list goes on and on. In fact, we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and number two caregiver podcast on Feedspot out of the top 60 and number two on CaringVillage.com. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today. But before we get started, I want to take this moment to thank my last week's guest, The Right Way, W-R-I-T-E, to self-care, author of you're a caregiver, not a saint, Lori Ramos. Hey, and just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of our other 26 global networks I mentioned. So, Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate your inviting me. No problem. And I just want to read your bio here. It says, Joanne has been a caregiver for decades, first for her son, who had schizophrenia, then for her mom, who had Alzheimer's disease. And after her mom's death, she provided care for her dad, who also suffered from dementia. When Joanne's husband, Alan, found out he had MSA, a fatal neurodegenerative illness, she moved her dad to a memory care facility so she could devote her energy to taking care of her husband. Wow, if anybody was a caregiver, you certainly are. All of those experiences, I think, have made you an expert. (laughs) Well... Thank you. I'm not. Um, I'm not sure that's something anybody chooses to be an expert in. But no. um, I have certainly learned some lessons along the way. It's not on our resume. We didn't volunteer for the job. We were drafted into the army of caregiving. Um, Indeed. So I always like to ask my guests, uh, "Who is Joanne Kelly, and why was she placed on this earth?" Hmm. Um, Joanne Kelly is a gardener. And a hiker. Um, I I have an artistic flair that I don't very often let out. (laughs) Um, But I think I was placed on this earth for two reasons. One is to learn some lessons about caregiving and two, to then write a book about it. And so that's what I've done. You are, are, are you an artist, a painter? What, tell me about your artistic flair's. I was a potter when I was in college, and I I used a kick wheel and threw pots and loved every minute of it. And I still have my kick wheel and my kiln out in my garage, and I've moved them numerous times as I've moved across the country. Um, And they weigh a ton. This is not something that's easy to move, um, because I always said... When I retire, I'm going to get back into throwing pottery. But um, I'm retired now, and I'm writing books instead. 
Well, we all remember that famous scene in the movie Ghost of the Pottery uh, <laughs> with Demi Moore. Um, so you probably have pottery all over your house, yes? Um, I have a few pieces of mine left, but most of them have chipped or cracked or <sighs> broken. And they go in the kiln and the oven and all of that stuff, right? You paint them. Mm-hmm. They do. What a, a almost a lost art. Keep it up. Teach it to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. <laughs> my, my kids used to um, play clay is what they called it while, while I was throwing pots when they were little. Well, you provided care to many individuals. Were the experiences strongly different from each other or were they surprisingly alike, all those caregiving duties that you had with the different people? Well, the caregiving experience itself was very different for each person. And I think the reason for that is that my relationship with each of these different people was very different. Mm. For example, um, with my mother, she, she, she was just this sweet, kind, thoughtful little lady. And, and she was just a joy to caregive for. because Just she like you, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> if only you were right. Um, but she was grateful for every everything that I did for uh, her. Those are and the she, nice ones, yes. Yeah. And she actually didn't recognize me as her daughter anymore. She called me that really nice woman. <laughs> See, <laughs> um, I told you. Yeah. But it didn't matter to me whether she recognized me or not. Um, we just... We got along well, and of course there were hard times. I'm not trying to pretend there weren't, but um, mostly it was a joy to give her a little extra TLC in her later years. But then I went from caretaking my mom directly into caretaking for my dad, who also had a form of dementia. Um, but he was kind of this gruff, my way or the highway kind of guy. Um and he was much harder to caregive for because our whole relationship had been sort of, uh, it felt sandpapery, you know? It was, there, was, there was friction. There was always friction. There was <laughs> never anything easy about it. So even though some of the duties were the same, the feeling that I got from it was different. Um, Did so, he ever caregive your mother? Well, he tried, but he caregiving was not in his DNA. It was not how he was made. Um, he had many, many strengths, but caregiving was just not one of them. He did. He lacked the capacity to um, put himself in my mother's shoes, for example. And he would say to her, "So here she is. She's got. She's got Alzheimer's. She can't remember anything." And he would say, "Margaret." Why are you doing this to me? Um, because he just didn't understand that she wasn't doing anything to him. She was acting out the symptoms of her disease. So, yes. And he was yeah, equally as bad a care receiver. <laughs> well, he, um, he had his challenges. We did have one activity that he thoroughly enjoyed and that was, um, I guess I got my writing um, genes from him because he, when he was younger, he wrote 
um, a notebook of stories about his life. And they were all, you know, mostly just one page. A few of them were a little longer than that. Um, but they were on a wide variety of subjects. But one of his favorite things was to have me read to him from his book of stories. And that just gave him immense pleasure. And so we did that almost every time I saw him. Wow. And then your husband. And then my husband was next on the list. <laughs> and he had um, multiple system atrophy, which is an illness that is in, the, um, it's called an atypical Parkinson, Parkinson's illness. And this illness basically took away his capabilities. Just every day we'd turn around and something else was gone. Um, so it was, that was hard. That, he, was, he was a very loving and kind and funny man. He made everybody laugh. Um, but caregiving for him was hard because it ripped my heart out to watch him losing capabilities every day, you know, like, um, you know, one, one day he discovered he couldn't ski. Well, that wasn't a big deal from my perspective because I didn't like to ski. But then he discovered that he couldn't dance. He'd fall on his face when he tried to dance. And that was a little harder. And then he discovered he couldn't walk, you know. So it's just every day we turned around and something he, he else. He kept his mind, though, didn't he? he well, sort of. He had definite problems with um, executive functioning. It was difficult for him to plan. For example, he loved to cook. Um, it was difficult for him to plan a meal because he couldn't figure out what he needed to start cooking first to have everything turn out at the end at the same time. But in terms of... And he didn't want any help, right? Oh, good Lord, no. We... We had to very carefully decide before we started cooking who was chef and who was sous chef. <laughs> so who was in charge and who was just going to be the support person. Um, and that was long before he got sick. We had to make those decisions because he liked to make the decisions when he cooked. And I liked to make the decisions <laughs> when I cooked. That so. is funny. Well, what's the difference between medical aid in dying and suicide? Okay, so... Is that like euthanasia or is it different? Yes, um, it's like it and it's different. Uh, so Alan decided um, as he got, as he lost more and more capability and sort of lost the ability to find joy in life, oh. he decided that he would end his suffering using medical aid in dying. And fortunately, I'm in Colorado. Fortunately, I'm in a state that we had both voted for medical aid in dying. And so you were um, supportive. I was definitely supportive of other people using medical aid in dying. Not but your it, husband. <laughs> but it was a lot harder when it was my husband because I was so emotionally involved. But Alan had told people from the get-go, I mean, from when I first met him, that um, we treat our pets better than we treat our elders because we allow them, um, we help them die when the time comes. When, the, when their suffering is too much to bear, we help them die. Yeah. And he didn't understand why people didn't have that same consideration. 
Mm. So I knew that he would support medical aid in dying, and I supported him as well. But I also wasn't the least bit surprised when he let me know that he, he would like to explore using medical aid in dying himself. So now we get to your question. Um, how is medical aid in dying different from um, euthanasia or how is it different from suicide? And there, um, Define each of those two. So we, okay. So with medical aid in dying, you have to, every state in the United States has slightly different sets of rules, but the basic outline for what criteria you have to meet are similar. First of all, two doctors must agree that you have a terminal diagnosis and that you have six months or less <clears throat> to live. So you need two doctors to, to say that. And you also need two doctors to agree that you have decisional capacity. And that means that you have the mental capability of making good decisions on your own behalf. And then the third sort of universal rule is that you must be able to ingest the medication by yourself. So it can be you, uh, somebody else can mix it up for you. So it's a powder that you mix with a liquid and then you consume it, you being the person who has chosen medical aid and dying. Um, but they cannot help you drink it. That is something you have to do yourself. But if you, if you are incapable of drinking something, it's also possible to self-administer it through your own feeding tube, for example. So as long as you're capable of self-administering this life-ending drug, um, then, then that's one of the qualifications that you have to meet. How does the drug kill you normally? Well, um, in the United States, they have adjusted the formula um, for the drug over time because the first drug that they used was the same drug that they used for um, executing people in prisons. And the manufacturer um, stopped producing the drug for use in the United States because they didn't want to have any part with executing prisoners. And so then they switched to a different formula that included several things. Um, I'm sorry, I've lost track of the question. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how does it kill you? What does it oh, do inside of you? So basically <clears throat> it suppresses your... Um, your will to breathe. So you suffocate, but you do it in a very calm and controlled and pleasant manner. So, um, really, it doesn't hurt to suffocate? Um, apparently not. My, okay. my husband showed absolutely no signs whatsoever. Of he wasn't gasping for breath or, or had no. a panic look on his face. Nothing, nothing like that. And I also participated a year before my husband died in a friend's death via really? and dying. And what, was, she, what were they dying of? She had a cancer, hmm. a breast cancer, a very aggressive breast cancer. 
Um, but she died very, very quickly. Alan took longer. He, um, Why is that? He, he lost, well, first of all, he was, he was relatively young when he, when he chose to um, die. How old? He was 71. Okay. Um, so his heart was still strong. So when so um, the healthcare system that Alan was part of printed out pages of instructions for us. They were really very helpful. Um, Are you okay talking about this? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It, it, it is um, one of my missions in life now is to spread the word about medical aid and dying because oh. I think I think people need to know about it. Sure. And not that it's especially if they're in pain, you know. Pardon? Especially if they're in pain and the only option is to have you drugged out on drugs where you don't yeah. even know where you are, you know. Right. So um, anyway, Alan's heart was strong. He lost consciousness fairly quickly, like within, I don't know, 10 minutes. It's hard to tell because time was all weird while he yeah. was dying. Um, but... The instructions from the healthcare people said it will take anywhere from eight minutes to three days for him to die. That's quite a that's <laughs> quite a time for him. Most people And you're alone here. There's nobody supervising this, right? Well, that's not entirely true. I'll cut I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Just remind me because yeah. um, sometimes I lose my train here. Um which I already have. Yeah. I would like to hey, go join back. the club. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I still, Let, I have let's read. move on. Let's move on. I'd rather uh, know the answer. We're running out of time to these other questions. It's not important how it works, just that it works. Yes, but, it works. Uh, it, I wanted it, to go back and answer the, the question you asked about how is it different from euthanasia? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So with use with euthanasia, somebody else injects you typically um, with a um, I see. with a, with a shot yeah. they inject the medication in you to start stop like we do to our animal you. right exactly but um, and with suicide suicide and medical aid and dying are sort of diametrically opposed from each other with suicide somebody has an unhappy life and they want to die. And they're not necessarily um, sick. But with medical aid and dying, not only are you not only not necessarily sick, most likely you don't even want to die. You'd rather live. You'd rather be healthy and live for a long right. time. But um, because you have this terminal diagnosis, and the only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to suffer more if you don't um, choose medical aid and dying. So many people choose to just shorten their suffering using medical aid and dying. Yeah. There's no place in the U.S. where it's illegal to do this, is there? Oh, yes. There are only 10 states in the District of Columbia really? that have passed laws um, legalizing medical aid and dying. And there are campaigns going on in many, many yeah. other states, in Massachusetts and New York, for example. Like the legal um, legalization of marijuana, kind of exactly. that journey it's going on. I assume exactly. California, it is legal. It is legal in California. I assume New York, it's legal. 
No, not not really? in New York yet. They have a different legislative process that makes it harder to pass. Really? Um, it's not open. If everybody voted, it would pass in New York because approximately 75% yeah. of people in the U.S. support medical aid and dying. And it's but legal in, in uh, Oregon and Washington? Uh, Oregon, Washington, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico. And New York should be on that list, but they're not. They will be soon. I'm okay. hoping, I think. All right. So, um, what's your motivation in, in writing this memoir? Well, participating in Alan's death, helping him die, this p- peaceful, tender death. Really, it was, con- it was difficult for you, wasn't it? Of course it was difficult for me. It was watching somebody I loved so very, very deeply die. And but that you is did hard. it anyway. Uh, and I did it anyway because I promised him when he got sick that I would support him whatever decisions he made along the way. I figured that was the most loving thing I could yeah. do for him. Did he actually need your help or did he not need your help? He absolutely needed my help because I needed to schedule appointments with all these doctors. And there is the the process to go through to get approved for medical aid and dying. is not simple. How long does the process take? Well, it's different in different states because they have different waiting periods and, and that sort of thing. But in Colorado, it typically takes about a month. And that is if you can get appointments with these doctors when you need to see them. And Why, are they that, really busy? Of course, they're really busy. <laughs> I mean, your neurologist is a busy person. Oh, and so he's they're, one of, they're not just death doctors. They have other practices and they got to be a practicing physician in something, right? Exactly. I see. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard getting to see a doctor. How can someone who's young and healthy make sure they have a good death when the time comes because maybe their spouse won't be cooperative well that's the million dollar change your mind you know um the most important thing for someone who wants to qualify for medical aid and dying to do is to start the process early and to start talking about it with all your loved ones way before you're going to need it but you can put it in writing too and that makes it legal right like a you can put it in writing exactly but the other thing you can do is make a video of you talking about what your wishes are at the end of life yeah well that makes sense yeah um so alan sounds like a really wonderful guy and uh there's some really funny scenes in your memoir was it hard Balancing the funny times with the sadness of losing him? Well, in a way, the yes, but um, mostly I was grateful for the funny times because mm-hmm. it made caregiving easier to have something to laugh about together. Yeah. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, it was. I was delighted. I mean, he was bending as ever with laughter, like just minutes before he took the medicine. Wow! When he he, it's. Can I tell you the joke he told us? Sure. Okay. Always like a good joke. So, um, my friend Liz had stopped by 
He, so he spent the last three months of his life in a nursing home because I couldn't take care of him at home anymore. And so um, after we brought him home from the nursing home because he wanted to die at home in his own bed. Yeah, and that's a very good reason to die because who wants to be in a nursing home? Yeah. <laughs> well, there are some good ones out there. Very few, but yes, there are. Yes. Um, but anyway, after after we brought him home, my friend Liz went and cleaned up his room and packed up the last few things and brought them over. And I asked her, asked her to leave most of the things in the garage, but the things on hangers, I said, bring them on in and hang them in the closet. And our master closet was right across the hall from Alan's room. And when Liz walked into the closet with these clothes on hangers, she started laughing because there was no place to hang them because I had taken over the whole closet in just three months. I had taken over the whole closet. As Not my wife has done with me, I've been the garage, you know. <laughs> yeah, really. So Alan lying in bed across the hall. So Liz and I were laughing our heads off over that. And then Alan across the hall yells in his best imitation of a New Jersey accent. Hey. Keep the noise down in there. We got people trying to die in here. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh, so anyway, he was. Did he, he know what you guys funny. were laughing at? I don't think not till we told him. <laughs> How did he react to that? Oh, he just laughs more. Well, you had caregiver burnout, I assume. Uh, what caused it? <laughs> Caregiving for decades, I think, <laughs> is what caused it. Um. And what did I suspect your next question is going to be? What did I do to handle it? Well, how long did you have it? And how quickly did you take care of it? And how did you take care of it? Okay. So I had caregiver burnout at, at various points throughout my son's illness, throughout my mother's, but they were brief bursts. And I would just do something to take care of myself, you know, have, take a nice hot bath. Uh, drink a nice glass of wine, read a good book, um, and I would feel better and I could go on. But um, with by the time I got to Alan, who is the last of this long list of people, um, I had kind of used up all my good ideas for um, rescuing myself. But I just, I made a practice, a sort of a gratitude practice of noticing all the little things that I really enjoyed during the day. So I might now the lilacs through my window in the morning when I woke up and I would just say, oh, thank you, God, for this beautiful experience of smelling the lilacs. And then the next thing might be the chocolate that I was eating after my breakfast. And I would just say, oh, thank you, God, for this chocolate. And I just did that all day long. Whenever I need a little spark, um, I just found something to be grateful for. Well, we're running out of time, so I need to ask you, um, what last bit of advice would you like to give our burned-out caregivers who are listening? Well, first of all, I would like to recommend that they get a copy of my book. Is it okay for me to talk about my of book? Of course. <laughs> okay. So my book is called Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity. Mm. And... I, I, it's going to be um, available from booksellers near you. 
on August 9th, which is just a week away from today. And I would highly recommend that you read what I have to say in there just about how I took care of myself. Um, But also, if caregivers are interested in learning more about medical aid in dying, I would highly recommend also that they read my book. If they they have any um, concerns about participating with their loved one in medical aid in dying, then absolutely get a copy of my book. And I'm assuming that all of this experience has not changed your opinion of you yourself wanting to die at, at the proper time? Well, no, it's reinforced the fact that I would like to choose when I die rather than letting nature decide for me. Yeah. We did that with my mother. You know, she, uh, she didn't like having the dementia. She, why is God doing this to me and this and that? Why doesn't he take me? <clears throat> when she went in for trouble swallowing or something, I told the doctor, and I'm grateful that he was an Indian doctor as opposed to an American doctor, because mm-hmm. they seem to be more compassionate and more understanding about these kind of things. And so I told him, listen, my mother has an advanced directive. She wants to go. She knows where she's going. She's happy to going. She's wanted to go there for a long time. So use whatever her condition is to hasten that process. You know, uh, she doesn't want life prolonging things. And so he did. He cooperated very much. He stopped the food. He stopped the water. And uh, she was gone in a couple of days. She developed this bladder infection, which became uh, painful. So he gave her an uh, antibiotic to ease the pain on that, but but kept, you know, because when you stop the water, that's how you get rid of an infection. So and then, you know, gave her the morphine and whatever. So she died very peacefully, said her goodbyes to everybody. And so it was it was a beautiful experience. I'm glad that that you and she had that beautiful experience. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. We appreciate it so much. You thank you for having me discussed a topic that very few people are talking about. And so um, I just want to remind everyone that uh, this show is available on podcast and all the 26 video and audio channels. And you can also purchase, uh, in addition to my guest book, you can purchase my newly released book with Secrets from the Hammock, Uncommon Wisdom for Uncommon Times, a great book that's changing lives all over the world. And it's available wherever books are sold and my website, caregiverdave.com, a free membership support community with lots of tools, resources, and free gifts. Check out my Facebook page, caregiverdave.com. I'm sorry, Caregiver Dave, a community of 34,000 caregivers. And if you click the like or follow button on whatever platform you're watching or listening to this interview on, it helps us reach even more caregivers by improving Google's search engine algorithms. And thanks again to all my listeners out there all over the world for tuning in every Wednesday and making us the number one caregiver podcast on the internet. So until next week, same time, same channel, may God richly bless you all. And thank you, Joanne, for coming on the show. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm Dave Nassani. My fourth book, Secrets from the Hammock, Uncommon Wisdom for Uncommon Times, is a number one bestseller on Amazon. As a young boy, I was told I possessed an unusual amount of wisdom for my age. As a young man, I found myself counseling friends and older family members whenever they needed answers to their problems. 
Then at 21, I read the Bible for the very first time and learned how King Solomon asked God for wisdom instead of riches, yet he received both. I was so impressed that I too asked God for wisdom. Soon after, I discovered when lying on my hammock, I would receive wisdom from God. This book is the result of my passion to share with the world wisdom's tremendous benefits. Join me as I reveal practical aspects of wisdom for the mind, body, and spirit. 31 lessons I learned from God that can change your life. Available in hardcover, audible, Kindle, and paperback, wherever books are sold. I've spoken all over the country and London, and am available to speak at your event. Contact me at hammockwisdom.com. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. 